So, so we're looking at this um, passage, um, John eleven twenty five, continuing in our um, series of the I Am statements. Um, just by way of by way of introduction, really, just want to talk a little bit about death, really. Um, so, um, since since the fall of Adam, um, the curse of death really has has reigned. Um, you know, over the human over the human race, it's reigned over all creation. Um, Romans five and verse twelve says that therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We know a few things about death. Um, death is no respecter of persons. We know that its tentacles reach. All types of people, no matter their background, their social standing, um, their bank balance. Um, we know that death has been described as the ultimate statistic, one out of one people die. Um, there was a famous American, uh, Benjamin Franklin, founding father of the US, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, he said that in, in life nothing can be certain apart from death and taxes. Um, but the scriptures speak about death. The scriptures speak about humanity really being in bondage to this fear of death, this terrifying fear of death, which kind of lingers and hovers over all of humanity. And it talks about that in um, the book of Hebrews. Um, and it says that, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime uh, subject to bondage. So it seems that in a sense, Satan himself is aware that death exists, that death came into the world through death, and he's, if you like, taken advantage of that fear, and it holds people in bondage all of their lives, and it can lead them into all sorts of sinful behaviour. But basically, in this account that we're going to look, look at now, we're just going to go through the passage, and there's lots of things here we're going to, we're going to pick up, really. There's a lot in this passage. Um, but we're going to really see Jesus described as he is the one who um, is the death destroyer. And he, he brings lib- liberation from the grave, basically. And we're going to see Jesus described as that um, this evening. But it's also important for us to remember that death is not just this physical end of our lives but it's also the Bible speaks in terms of spiritual death um, it talks in Ephesians I mean really physical death if you like it's just, it's just the end manifestation of a spiritually dead life it's just the logical conclusion of a life which has been spiritually dead um, it talks in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 it says you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins and it talks about in Romans it says that to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So Jesus, he doesn't only offer us this hope of, a, of kind of freedom, avoiding physical death, but he actually offers us a whole new supernatural quality of life, a life which starts at the present in this time. And it's a different quality of life to the life that we naturally inherit from Adam, a completely different sort of life, um, one f- which is far superior to that life, and it begins now and in, in the present. And that's really what we want to, to look at as we, go through, as we go through this passage, basically. 
Um, So let's have a look now at the passage. Let's just go through the passage together. So we read in verse 1 that a certain man was sick, um, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So we're introduced to the main people um, in this account. Lazarus means God has helped. Um, We know that Jesus was well acquainted with this family. He often came to visit them, or we think he often came to visit them. We, knew, we know he visited them at least on one occasion before. He, um, he, uh, he spent some time, didn't he, with Mary and Martha, and Martha was very, very busy with doing everything, and Mary was the one who, who, who kind of knelt at Jesus' feet and wanted to spend that time with him. Um, we kind of get the impression that Mary and Martha were a couple of sisters who probably lived together and, and Lazarus was, was living with them, probably kind of fairly well looked after um, by them. Uh, <laughs> we know that, um, I, I guess in as well, just, you know, Jesus as well, you just imagine Jesus as an itinerant preacher going around, you know, we know that he had no, he didn't have anywhere to lay his head, did he? He, he kind of, he didn't have any, any home as such. But it must have been a real oasis for him to have this family and to know that he always had a warm welcome with um, Mary and Martha, that they were always there um, for him. We don't know, but we, we guess that they were probably fairly, fairly well to do. Um, the reason we can infer that is because we know that when Lazarus died, that, um, that there were a lot of Jews present, and often people would... That, that indicates they probably had a good standing in the community. They had lots of people there to mourn um, Lazarus's death. We also know if we look at um, uh, chapter 12 and verse, verse uh, 3 um, that Mary took um, some very costly oil and poured it at the feet of Jesus. And so, I mean, obviously she may have been a bit poor but saved up for it, but she may also well have been someone who was quite, quite wealthy um, and, and had this, the ability to buy this costly oil of spikenard um, and pour it um, at the feet of Jesus. So we know, we know something about Mary, don't we? What do we know about Mary? We know that Mary really had a very deep love for Jesus. And she, she kind of, she, she displayed this very heartfelt and, and, and dramatic gesture of love for him in chapter 12 and verse 3 when she poured out this costly oil. And, and you know, one of the things I was going to mention, which I think John touched on this morning really, was it's not so much a matter of, you know, sometimes we can feel guilty just because Some some of us don't have money, some of us do have money. But we can sometimes feel guilty just because we've got money. But actually that's not so much the issue if we have something costly. Um, God isn't against the rich per se, but he's interested in whether our hearts are rich towards God. And Mary had that heart that was rich towards God. And she was willing to pour out her riches. The question is, are we willing to pour out what we've got, whether it's a lot or a little? Are we willing to pour that out for the Lord? And Mary was willing to do that. She poured out what she had to the Lord. Um, so it's not so much what we have, but it's how tightly we're holding on to what we have. If we're very wealthy and we're holding on to that tightly, um, and we're not willing to pour that out to the Lord, um, that's where there's a problem. But we know that Mary poured out what she had to the Lord. We know, we know that's who Mary was. So we go on to verse 3. We find that out about Mary and, and um, Martha, that background. And moving on to verse 3, we see them send a message to Jesus. And they just simply say, Lord uh, behold, he whom you love is sick. I think that in that just simple phrase, we learn, we learn quite a lot. And uh, what we learn there is, I think it shows us something about the kind of relationship that um, Mary and Martha had with Jesus. Because you notice what they didn't do is they didn't kind of beg or plead 
They just simply stated very simply, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Do you know what it's like if you know someone quite well? Like, Lucy will know this. Like, we can be at someone's house, and they'll say something which, I don't know, she'll know I have an opinion on or something like that, or, or, or I've got a particular idea. And, and I can just look in a certain way, and, and she'll know exactly what I'm thinking about. And I guess, and I guess if people of you who are married, you know, I'm sure it's the same thing. You, you know exactly what your spouse is, is thinking at that time. But, you know, they had this kind of relationship with Jesus, I think, that there was an intimacy there, and they almost didn't need to say anything. And what they did say um, in this situation um, was, was very, very simple, because there was kind of a security in the relationship that they had with Jesus. There was a closeness with that relationship that they had with him. Um, and also, they knew something about Jesus, which is very important. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. They knew that he, he whom you love is sick. In fact, they probably knew, in all reality, knowing knowing the kind of person Jesus was and the love he displayed, they probably knew that Jesus actually loved Lazarus more than they did themselves. So they were confident um, in, in, in that love um, that the Lord had um, for Lazarus. You know, that's the, same, that's the same for us. You know, that's the same for us in different ways. You know, we can present people, we're concerned about somebody, and we can just present them to the Lord. And we know that the Lord loves and cares about that person more than we do. And, and also it's the same with us. We know that we can just present our requests to him. We don't necessarily always have to... Sometimes it's enough just to say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Just present your request to him. It says, doesn't it, in um, uh, Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, it says, Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So all we need to do is just present our request to the Lord. We know that he loves us. We're confident in his love. And we're confident that he loves others, those who we lay before him, more than we do ourselves. So, it also says, doesn't it, another verse there, another nice, lovely verse, um, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. It says, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. The Lord cares for us. He has that heart of care for us. And we can just, we can just lay, lay these things down, <clears throat> whatever it is. We can just present this thing to him. We can just lay it down, leave it in his hands, knowing that he'll take care of it. That's, that gives us great security. So what do we find Jesus doing? Um, we find in verse, um, in verse 6, he, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. So that's, that's, the first, that's the first thing that, that Jesus does. He stays, where he, he stays where he was. And Sorry, I just want to go back to verse 4 again. He says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be, manif- um, may be glorified. So Jesus could speak with this kind of calm certainty. By the point that Jesus was speaking here, Lazarus was already dead. He'd already popped his clogs. He was already dead in the tomb. Um, but Jesus could say that this, um, this death is going to result in, in um, the final outcome is going to be more glory for God. And you know, as believers, we know as well, when, when we die, that this sickness is not unto death, or our deaths are not unto death as such. They're not unto eternal death. If we trust in Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, even our death um, is, is not, is not, um, it's not an eternal death. We won't experience the second death. Um, but Jesus had that confidence in this situation, and he knew um, that this was ultimately going to lead um, to uh, God's glory, basically. So, 
Um, we look at verse 5, um, and we see it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we see it's restated, again, really clearly. We've talked already about what indicates that they had this very close relationship. But we see it indicated again, and it says Jesus really loved these guys. He really had a close relationship with him. But if this is so, if Jesus really did love them... You know, why, why did he delay in coming to them? Why did he just say, you know, I really love you guys, I'm really, con- you know, really concerned about you, but I'm just going to stay here and, and you know, <laughs> stay here for a couple of, couple of days. He doesn't, he doesn't immediately like, rush to their aid. And that doesn't really seem like the actions of someone who, who really, you know, really loves someone and really cares about them, does it? Um, but really, what's interesting here is that Jesus delay in coming to them, it's not a sign of his indifference to them. It's not a sign that he doesn't care or he's apathetic. It's actually a sign that he has a superior love to them. He has, he has a unique and an even greater love for them by not coming to them. You know, and I was thinking about this, I mean, this morning, it's hard to know why we suffer, isn't it, sometimes? And, and, and I think, you know, obviously John said this morning, you know, and, and very rightly, you know, many, many times we are called as part of the Christian life and following the example of Christ to suffer on behalf of others. But there can be situations on other occasions where, where we do suffer for a time, and it's, it can be because God wants to manifest an even greater display of his power. I mean, if you think through the Gospels, Jesus performed lots and lots and lots of healings. He healed countless people who came to him. But you can count probably on one hand the number of times he raised people from the dead. Um, There was the widow of Nain, wasn't there? There was um, Jairus' daughter. Um, there wasn't very many. There wasn't very many people that Jesus rose from the dead. There was a few, but not many. And Lazarus was in that select few. And so, by not coming to them, Jesus was going to demonstrate an even greater display of God's mercy in their life. And you know, sometimes we feel like that as believers. We feel like, well, God isn't answering me. You know, He doesn't really love me. He's just indifferent to what I'm going through. But we should never take a delay as a denial of God's love. We should never take that delay of him as a denial of him not really loving us. He does love us. Um, and he's working all things for his glory and for our good. And it may be that we're called to suffer. I mean, I, I didn't say that, but I mean, you know, from this morning, it may be that we're called in that place to suffer for the benefit of others. But it may also be that God wants to demonstrate an even greater display of his mercy and his goodness in our lives um, that will bless us and others as well and draw others towards him. And that's what happened here. So, so we should never, we should never, we should never take a delay as a denial. That's what I want to get from that. So, we're just going to move on to verses seven and eight. And uh, after this, he says to the disciples, "Let us go to Judea again." The disciples said to him, "Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again?" So, uh, the, the the disciples. You know, they think, oh, Jesus, you're crazy. You know, if you've got, have you got a death wish or something? You know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, kill you if you go there. And in some ways, at face value, it seems like a noble sentiment. Like it was nice they didn't want Jesus to be, you know, to be, to be killed, I guess. That's a good thing. But underlying that, underlying that, um, you know, that, that sentiment, there are a few things that we can see about their underlying attitude and about what they got wrong. I mean, first of all, they didn't trust that Jesus had the power to look after himself, that he had the power to preserve himself. So there's a lack of faith. They also don't understand that his 
his, his mission, his whole mission is to suffer and die. That's the whole reason he came. So in a sense, he knows he's walking into you know, the lion's mouth, but he doesn't care about that. And maybe they harbour a secret fear that they're going to suffer themselves if they go to Judea. So that maybe that's what's underlying what they're saying there. So I'm going to go on through to verse 10. And, you know, Jesus talks there about um, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the, night, the light is not in him. Um, and what does Jesus mean there? Well, <clears throat> I think in a sense he's talking about this whole account is really happening very shortly before um, Jesus comes to you know, the night of his passion, the time when he's going to suffer and die. And so there's a very short window that they've got where they, can, where they can be ministering to people. So that's the immediate context. But also, there's, there's the sense in which there's a deeper meaning here, that if anyone walks... Jesus described himself as the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And if we walk by him, we won't stumble. We won't be led... Once we're his, we will not be led into an everlasting destruction. If, as long as we are trusting in Jesus, we're not going to end up stumbling or ending up, ending up um, in the wrong way. So that's the deeper, the deeper meaning. So, um, so that's what Jesus is talking about, um, walking, walking in the light there. And he is the light of the world. So interesting, I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea, um, because I think it's important really, about this idea of death as sleep. Quite interesting. Death is sleep. Um, Jesus refers to death here as sleep. So in a sense, you know, sleep is not a scary thing. I don't know whether you get scared before you go to bed. Probably not now, at your age. I don't think I do too much, you know, as long as there's a nightlight or something in the landing. <laughs> but, you know, we don't get scared when we go to sleep. And for a believer, that's really what death should be like. That's how we should view death. I mean, we don't always, do we? But um, we should see death that way, that it, is, it does hold no more fear for us than going to sleep. Maybe we could fear the process of death, but death itself is really just a rest from the labour of life. And what happens in death is death is frequently described in the scriptures as sleep. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, I don't, want, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So why do the scriptures refer to death as sleep? Well, really it's because that when, when the body dies, it, it takes on the appearance of being asleep. If you've seen a dead body, it looks as though it's asleep. In fact, working in a few nursing homes over the years, you've often looked at patients, oh, you know, are they, are they alive? Have they actually passed on into the next world? Um, but, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, death is sleep, because in death our body has the appearance of, of sleep, doesn't it? And, and in death the body becomes inactive, it rests from the labours of life, and, and, uh, you know, and you see the body, the body that way, it waits for the resurrection call of Jesus. The Greek word for um, a cemetery is a dormitory, and so somewhere where you sleep, somewhere the body rests. Now, it is important to be precise about our, sometimes it can be important, <laughs> to be precise about our doctrine. Um, th- there are groups who, who have taught um, a doctrine known as soul sleep, um, and, and in this belief, they believe that the, the soul of the person becomes um, inactive, um, and, uh, and, and that the soul itself sleeps until the resurrection. So we kind of pass into a phase of, of oblivion, I guess you would say. Um, and there are various groups who have taught this, um, including Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians um, and various others. Um, but we know that this is not what the scripture teaches. I mean, it's not, 
Sounds awful. It's probably not the most major point because, you know, uh, whether you die, you're probably not going to be aware of that time anyway. But I think, sometimes, sounds ridiculous, but I think sometimes it is good to know a little bit about what do we believe about death. I mean, the scriptures don't give us an exhaustive list. We don't know about everything about heaven. Um, we know that eyes not seen nor ear heard what awaits us there. But it's probably good for us to have a kind of a basic grasp because I think that that helps our hope, doesn't it, if we know roughly what we believe about it. And I think the scriptures are quite clear that as soon as we die, we do pass immediately into the conscious presence of the Lord. And the reason why I think that is it says um, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, Paul says, So we are always confident. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're absent for the Lord, from the Lord. We are confident, yes, rather well pleased to be absent from the Lord and to be present Sorry, absent from the body and present with the Lord. So we know that we know that when we're absent from the body, we are going to be immediately present with the Lord. We're going to, if you like, we're going to close our eyes on this side of eternity, and we're going to awake us. I suppose we don't have body, so you know, I can't be awaking physical eyes. But you'll be opening your physical eyes, and we will be in the presence of the Lord at that time. And Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 23, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So lots of scriptures like that indicate that we pass immediately. We've got the thief on the cross. We've got the Lord saying to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So you may come across people who have this belief. um, But I think it's, it's good just to be clear on what we do believe about what the scriptures teach. I mean, just by the way, the scriptures do in a sense teach that there is a temporary... Now, this is going to sound a bit dodgy, but I've got, I've got questions. There is, a temporary, there is a temporary heaven and there's a temporary hell. And the reason we know that, don't we? Because we know that hell, heaven, I think it says in Revelation that there's going to be a heaven which is going to be swallowed up. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth. So that isn't the permanent heaven necessarily that we go to when we, when we die, where we'll be for eternity. Um, and we also know that um, you know, there's Hades, isn't there? The Bible does seem to allude to this place called Hades, which is like a waiting room for the wicked before people are finally cast into the lake of um, the lake of fire. So there is a, there is a, there is some difference, um, you know, between where where the soul perhaps goes initially and, and where its final destination is. But we do know that there is no period of, of, of sleep in between those two phases, and we do know that um, when we die, we will be immediately in the conscious presence of the Lord. And I think that that is um, that is a, a great comfort for us, and um, you know that is a comfort um, knowing Stephen when he was stoned. You know, he had that vision of the Lord immediately, and so I think it's important that we, we believe that and uh, and uh, and that we we're comforted by that belief so we'll just move through the passage in verse 16 um, it says Thomas who is called the twin said to his fellow disciples let us go that we may die with him so poor old Thomas <clears throat> I was reading about this apparently church tradition said that the reason he was called the twin was because he actually looked quite like Jesus <laughs> so, so the reason he was a bit worried about going into um, Judea is probably because he thought well you know it's going to be my neck on the line if I look so much like him I, d- I don't know if that's true but that's what church tradition apparently says that he, Thomas called the twin he looked like Jesus um, but what he expresses, I think, is very, is very telling, really. Um, firstly, Thomas does understand what discipleship is, what Christian discipleship is. Do you remember Ruth says in the book of Ruth, she says, where you, where you go, I'll go. We're singing that song, don't we, that Clayton wrote. Where you go, I'll go. And where you die, I'll die. And, and there's an element, isn't there? In, in, well, that's what Jesus calls us to, doesn't he? He calls us to take up our cross and, and to deny ourselves and to follow him. So I think Thomas understood, you know, we're willing to, I'm willing to go and die with you. But what Thomas didn't understand, I think, and, and, and what we know later on when Thomas sees the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, what he didn't know is, and what he didn't have confidence is in, he, he kind of resigned himself to, to, to follow Jesus and to live this life of discipleship, but he didn't seem to have that faith that the one that he was resigning himself to 
actually holds death, has dominion over death and holds the key of death and Hades. Because if we do that, we can resign our lives to Jesus, but we can do it in a fearless way. I think maybe there is a sense in which we can say, yes, I'll do you know, and there is, a, there is a fear, and, uh, you know, there is a fear, but actually, by denying ourselves, by, um, by being willing to, to even die with and for Jesus, we know that we're actually placing our hands into the one who holds the power of death and Hades. So we can be confident in that. And, and you get the impression that, that perhaps Thomas hadn't, um, hadn't grasped that. So, verse 17. So we see that Jesus came and he found that um, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Four days. Why is four days significant? Well, four days is significant because obviously, I think we talked about this before with Dorcas, but the Jews had this belief that um, for the first three days, I think, the soul would kind of hover around the body of the corpse. Um, but after three days, you'd really had your chips, basically. You know, the, the soul kind of hovered around thinking, oh, you know, I might get a chance to get back into the body. But, um, <laughs> but, but, after that, but after that period, kind of the soul had floated off too far that it wasn't going to have any chance of getting back to the body again. So, so you, kind of, you kind of had your chips, basically. So Jesus came because he came, really, didn't he, in, in a situation that was completely hopeless. There was no, there was no chance of, of resurrection. Jesus often does that, doesn't he? He comes into our lives just at that point when all of, our, all of our resources have failed and from a human point of view, everything else is hopeless. But Jesus comes in and, uh, and he brings resurrection and he brings life. Um, and that's what Jesus was doing here in this situation. He was, he was, he was, um, he was bringing, that, bringing that in. So, that's, yeah, that's right. Now, I want to look at verse 20. I think this is really interesting. Um, I want to look at Martha and Mary. I wonder if you're a Martha or a Mary. Um, I don't know. I think I might be more of a Mary. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm more of a Martha. I don't know. But anyway, um, what we see Martha doing, <coughs> what we see Martha doing is as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, she runs out and meets him. She's in a, she wants to do something. Do you remember what Martha's personality is? Martha is the person who's always got to be doing. She's always got to be active. She's always got to be busy. You know, she's always got to be cleaning and, and, and preparing for the guests and doing things, doing, doing, doing. And you know, in some ways, that was, a really, that was a really bad thing the last time that they spent time with Jesus. Because actually, Mary was the one who was just chilled out and just, you know, just being with Jesus, spending some quality time with him, receiving from him. And that was kind of, that was kind of a bad aspect of her temperament. But, you know, this time, what we see Martha doing, and it's probably the same temperament, that desire to be rushing out and doing things, it causes her to rush out and meet Jesus. She wants to be doing something in this situation. She's like, Jesus, you've arrived, you know, and she, she immediately rushes to him. I don't want to read too much this, but I think sometimes, you know, we all have different temperaments, don't we? You know, we don't want to focus too much on our temperaments or get too introspective about it. But I think it helps us sometimes if we have some awareness in life of what our natural temperament is. Because, and the reason I say that is because there can be dangers and temptations which we're particularly unique to in having particular temperaments and there can be advantages of having particular temperaments as well it's not a one size fits all so although Martha's temperament before led her to be really busy and not spending time with Jesus look what she does here, she rushes out to meet Jesus, she rushes to meet him so there's, there's a lesson there for us that we have to just be aware sometimes of, of, of what we're tempted towards You know, if we're tempted to always be busy we're not necessarily spending that time with Jesus that we need to be but, you know, sometimes it can work the other way and we rush to meet Jesus. Um, and we need to be aware, you know, maybe Mary in this case was, was too inactive and she was too sloth, 
you know, slothful, not wanting to meet with Jesus. So we all have those things, and we just need to be, just have a bit of an awareness of that, I think. You know, that can be helpful sometimes. But then we see, um, uh, in verse 21, we see Martha saying to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So, so whatever you ask of God, God, God will give you. So, so really, Martha shows here two things. She shows she's willing to believe in Jesus. She really wants to believe in him, in a sense. She really wants to believe in him. But the other thing is we see that her... Her conception of who Jesus is is very limited. It's very limited. Um, she doesn't believe, she, she almost believes that it, is, that it is pretty much too late. You know, if you'd been here earlier, you know, I want to believe you, Jesus. I've got this willingness to believe you, but I don't really think you can do anything now. And we can be like that as well. So, looking at verse um, 23, 23 Jesus, said, Jesus says to her that your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then we get these wonderful words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. So, <clears throat> one of the things that, that I want to... I'm going to go on a slight ten, ten, tangent here. But just I want to talk about resurrection life and what that is. And I think one of the things that Martha kind of implied here is that she saw resurrection life as something entirely future you know she saw this thing as beginning entirely in the future i know that he will rise again one day but jesus says i am the resurrection and the life and and jesus he isn't only the means to the resurrection life he is the resurrection life um, you know, Paul says, doesn't he, in Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that life, that supernatural life, has actually begun now. We res- we, we've got resurrection life. If you know Jesus here, if you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you have resurrection life working in you now. It's a different kind of life to the life that we naturally inherit from Adam, but it's a, it's a resurrection life. It's a work in us as now, because Jesus is the resurrection. And as we're united with him, we share in his life. And I just want to talk about a few characteristics, just briefly, when we talk about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. I mean, there's lots of things we could talk about, just very briefly. I just want to bring out about four characteristics of that new resurrection life that begins now. I just want to really talk very briefly about that. So first of all, very obviously, it's eternal life. It's everlasting life. And that fact is contingent upon the fact that God himself is eternal. So as we're united with Christ, as we become partakers, as it says in Peter, of the divine nature, as we're united with Christ, we share in that eternal life. It says in Psalm 90 and verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So that's God's nature, his eternality. We talked, when I was talking about... um, Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. We talked about how we've got this yearning, this natural yearning for eternality in our hearts. Um, Something that, 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 you know, God has put eternity in our hearts, it says in Ecclesiastes. Um, But actually the only way that that thirst can be met for eternality is by becoming united to the life of Jesus himself. So that's one of the chief characteristics. The second thing I want to say is that this life has its source in a personal relationship. So it's about knowing Jesus. It says in John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So it's a life which is rooted in a knowledge, a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's only possible um, because of... Well, the thing is, the resurrection life of Jesus is not... I've said here, it's not only possible because of knowing Jesus, but it is a real deep relationship with Jesus. That is what the life is. It is a relationship with Jesus. So it's deeply personal um, and and deeply based on him. Just from the Gospels, some of the other things we learn about this life, two other things I just want to briefly mention. It's a life which paradoxically loses itself. Jesus talks in Luke 17 and verse 33, he says, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And that's the character of the new life that's in us. It's a life which is actually willing to, um, to kind of lose our lives, to lose that natural life. And as that life, you remember Jesus talks about a grain of wheat which falls falls to the ground, um, and then it kind of triggers the germination of all this new life. Um, Jesus says that the quality of the new life is that it's actually willing to lose itself. It doesn't, it doesn't grasp, it's open-handed. It, um, it, it gives itself both to God and to others. It's willing to lose itself, um, and it's in that that it becomes abundant life. Jesus talked about, I've come to bring life and life in all its abundance. And that fruitfulness and that, abundant, and that abundance comes by being a life which is willing to lose itself. That's a characteristic, important characteristic of that life. And finally, the life that starts now, the resurrection life of Jesus that starts now, it's a life which is evidenced by a supernatural quality of love. It's evidenced by a supernatural quality of love. It says in 1 John 3, it says, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who doesn't love his brother abides in death. Um, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So they're the qualities. They're some of the qualities, not all of them, but that's just a taste of the life that we now have abiding in us. And actually, we don't have to. Sometimes we feel we have to work these things up, but we don't have to do that. All we have to do is just to spend some time with the Lord. We just have to abide in Him. We just have to receive that life. That life is already in us. We can do things to kind of quench and minimise that life. If we sow to the flesh, we start to sow death. We start to sow death in us and that, um, and that actually quenches this life but if we sow to the spirit we're going to reap life and all these characteristics of the resurrection of life resurrection life of Christ they, they become more and more apparent in our life so, so that's really just a few words about that resurrection life of Jesus don't know, how, how am I doing for time? sorry I don't want to go on <laughs> um, but that's, that's, the, that's the resurrection life of, of, of Jesus so um, just Briefly, in verses 28 to 57, I'm just, we're just going to really quickly wrap up, the, you know, just talk about a few other points I just want to really briefly mention. Um, I want to talk about Jesus' attitude towards death, just really quickly. Jesus' attitude towards death. Um, his attitude, Jesus has an aggressive attitude towards death, and he has a compassionate attitude towards death. In verse 33, when he's coming there, I mean, we're continuing on the account, he's coming um, to, to heal Lazarus. Um, And it talks about Jesus groaning in his spirit. He's groaning in his spirit and he's troubled. And in ancient Greek, this groaning of the spirit, it means like snorting like a horse. Um, So it's giving the sense of extreme fury and indignation. Jesus is really angry. He's a bit like, you know, like... Um, you know, he'd be a boxer getting ready to go on the ring, you know, or, um, or, like, um, or like a warrior preparing for battle. He's snorting, he's groaning, that's what the ancient Greek means. He's, t- he's preparing to take on death. 
He's preparing to defeat death, this intrusive enemy. And there's something unnatural about death. I mean, if you see death and you... I mean, unfortunately, in my job, I have to often see dead bodies. I'm often down at the mortuary, kind of doing paperwork, cremation forms, and, you know, it's not particularly nice. I don't relish it, but I'm often there seeing dead bodies. And it is very unnatural. There is something very unnatural about death. That isn't the way it was meaning to be. And Jesus is angry against this intrusion of death into God's creation. And he... He prepares like a battle. He, he prepares to take on death. He prepares to, to defeat death. Um, he arms himself um, with death. But we also see that Jesus' attitude is compassionate. And we see in, in, in verse 35 that Jesus wept. And that's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And he's moved with, he's moved with, with grief and, and, and sorrow for the people around him who, who, are, in, who are in pain. The Greeks... Prized Greek culture, it prized in their God and in their culture generally, because there's a big influence of Stoicism, they prized this idea of apatheia. And one of the, one of the things that their God was, is he was apathetic, he was, he was detached, he was emotionless. Um, but we see here God incarnate, we see God, we see Jesus deeply moved, we see him deeply moved, we see him agonised, in agony, um, um, and compassionate towards those, towards, um, towards his death. So Jesus wept, Jesus was angry against death, but he wept and he was compassionate. Um, so that's, um, that's, uh, that's, that's good to see. Um, and so um, we, see, we see just briefly verses 38 to 34, we see, I mean it's obvious, we see the irrefutable evidence that, that, that Lazarus is dead. There's been this stench for four days, the body has started to to decompose and then what do we see Jesus doing I mean this is really the, the, the pinnacle of the passage really we see Jesus then he demonstrates his power doesn't he over death he demonstrates his power over death and just briefly we notice about that how does he do it he just does it by the word of his mouth he just says Lazarus come forth Lazarus come forth um, we see some really elaborate procedures, don't we? People trying to raise the dead in the Bible. I think, is it... I always get confused between Elisha and Elijah. But I think we see, like, Elisha stretching out three times and, and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, a few kind of... quite kind of complex procedures. But actually, we see Jesus, and it's, it's evidence of the power that the Son of God has in himself. He just speaks a word. It talks in the final resurrection that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God um, and that they will live. Because he's God in him, himself. He has that power. It's very... It's not difficult for Jesus to do. You get the impression... It was a little bit of a struggle for poor old Elisha to try and raise people from the dead. He was having to lunge over and do all these various things. But Jesus just needs to speak the words, and uh, and, and and Lazarus immediately comes out of the of the grave. Um, so I mean, Lazarus comes out in all of his all of his grave clothes. Um, but really, it's just with with Lazarus, it's just it's just a resuscitation in some ways, not just a resuscitation, but. Lazarus is going to need his grave clothes again in a few years' time. He's going to die again, unfortunately, poor old Lazarus. He's going to die again. But, you know, when Jesus died, when he, when he resurrected again, he had no more need for his grave clothes. You know, Lazarus came out bandaged hand and foot. But when Jesus came out of the grave, that was it, death. He had nothing more to do with death, you know. So, just finally, we, we, just, we didn't read these verses, but we just look at, there's two reactions there's two reactions. There's always two reactions, isn't there? In the Bible, it seems. Normally, there might be more. There might be more complex. But the world is divided into two, isn't it, really? It's divided into those who will bow the knee to Jesus, those who will accept him, and those who reject him. We see that in verse, verse uh, 45. We saw that many of the Jews 
um, came to Mary and they saw the things that Jesus did and they believed in him. And that's not surprising, is it? I mean, after seeing such a great miracle, I mean, who wouldn't believe in a sense? But we also see that other reaction that's always there. We see that um, reaction of rejection. And uh, we, see the, um, we see the chief priests and the elders um, saying, you know, uh, if, if we let him alone, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're totally, under, they're totally misunderstood why Jesus came. Jesus came to offer life. He came to offer abundant life to all. He didn't come, up to, he didn't come to set up a political kingdom um, that would topple or threaten the authorities at the time. But they did, and out of jealousy and envy, they rejected him. So I guess, I guess there's two reactions for us, isn't there? We're confronted with Jesus. We're confronted... I mean, I, I trust that you know, we, all, we all know Jesus tonight, and that this is just more of a, an exhortation, really, to, to, just, to just receive that resurrection life that he offers us, and just to be thankful for that, and just to grow in that, and to grow in all those things that we've mentioned. Um, but, you know, there are those who, who reject as well. And, and they don't they don't receive that life that, that Jesus that Jesus offers. And there are those two there's always those two reactions, isn't there?